Hey everyone, welcome to the 29th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. On today's episode, we're joined by our friend Joel Myers to talk about what you can learn and implement in your own game from watching this year's Australian Open. We discuss what you can learn from Novak Djokovic and tiebreakers, what serve plus one patterns the pros are using, and how the best players in the world are using their backhands. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Joel, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure if you're the same way as I am, but you know, you're on court all day and then we get off the court and then you're doing Instagram videos. And then <laughs> in my case, I'm also talking tennis on podcasts a couple nights a week. So I don't watch a lot of tennis for just pure enjoyment or relaxation. But when I do, it's it's almost like I'm it's like education. It's just more education and I'm watching what the pros do and trying to learn. And so I thought we'd bring you on because that's your specialty anyway. And uh, hopefully people can learn kind of through you and, and maybe through us of, of what we picked up by watching the Australian Open this year. Yeah, I'm for sure on the same boat. I definitely try and watch all the big historic matches, but then I'll generally try and find clips on YouTube of all of the match highlights and going deeper to the ones that show more of the points and less of the downtime. I love that. That's more efficient. I should I should probably look into that. But um, so where, where I want to start is with obviously Novak. I believe it was his 10th straight. And even though Rafa's my guy, it's pretty tough to not make a claim that Novak is the best player ever. And in some of his matches, I heard the commentators are talking about how he's also maybe the best tiebreak player ever. And I know you watched some of that. What do you, what do you think makes him so great in tiebreakers? Yeah, I've been watching him play tiebreaks for a long time. And I think just his general approach to basically... He'll take risk at the start of the point if it's there. If his opponent is playing passively, he'll definitely step up and and dictate. But he's also willing to hit to big targets, to use his legs and to work his his depth to sort of handcuff his opponents under pressure. And as you know, anything that they drop short on, he's more than willing to step up. But it's sort of his approach to not take as much risk, uh, silly risk in tie breaks and sort of really get to the head of his opponent and work through big targets. I don't know if you have you heard of the book called Analyzing Wimbledon? No. It's 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 a like super mathy book. I mean, it's way over my head, but they kind of tested 15, I don't know what the plural of hypothesis is, hypothesize, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, but but they, they tested 15, 15 things, and one of them was do big players step up on big points? And basically what they concluded statistically was the best players in the world just play the same way. And the lower level people either force it too much or pull back too much. And so their level drops and people like Novak just stay the same. So kind of when you said, if he gets an opportunity, he takes advantage, right? But if he doesn't, he's very happy to just play the same way and doesn't let the moment get to him. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah, I think people know it's Novak down the other end. So the pressure is already there. But by just hitting quality to bigger targets, they're sort of unsure. Do I pull the trigger? Can I sustain this? Um, and if I play defense, knowing that he's going to attack, it's in the back of their mind, should I punch first? And I think sometimes it forces players into pulling trigger on balls that maybe they shouldn't. But he's very smart about when he takes his risk. It has to be the right ball or he has to be in a little bit of a lead in the tiebreaker before he looks to you know, take any more risk than he has to. But that's what makes him so tough to beat, especially in tiebreakers. Everybody knows you have to pry the point from him. He's not going to give you anything. And I think you know, every tennis player can take something from that in terms of, you know, I'm going to play my best patterns early in the tiebreaker until I can 
establish a little bit of a lead and then I can afford to take more risk after that, knowing that my opponent is probably going to play more passively when they're behind. But I do think that mentally going to tiebreakers against Novak, it's like, you know, the return's coming back. You know, he can make you play a tough volley if you approach. There's just, where do you go against Novak? That's what makes it tough. Carlos Gaffi talks about red light points, kind of like near the end of the game, the 30 alls, the deuces, the ads. Um, and then obviously all these points in a tiebreaker are super crucial, but it almost looks like some of his winners are like accidental. I know, I think it was, I think uh, Pass had a, a set point, maybe it was like 30-40 in the second set. And Novak was going huge targets, huge height over the net. And I think he pulled an inside-in forehand winner. And I was watching, I just got off a flight actually, and I was watching it. And I'm like, that looked like an accident. It looked like he was just trying to move him around with margin. It was like, oh, great. Like, I found a winner. Like, good for me. I think people just try to do too much on big points. Yeah, absolutely. He's just content to, I know he's hitting the ball well, but he's kind of content to do nothing. Yeah. Unless you really give him a, an opportunity. And I, I don't know why other players have such a hard time with that. Yeah, no, I, th- I just think it's the confidence in the quality of the ball that you can hit to a big target. I mean, he's not going to drop the ball short. I saw statistics today that was in that final against Sitsipas. There was 91% of his ground strokes went past the service line. And th- I think it was 39% were past the depth line. So for people listening, the depth line is halfway between the service line and the baseline. That's a huge amount of balls that he's keeping deep. So he's establishing a ton of pressure on the, the baseline player. And he's either saying, match me for depth, uh, either go for a target away from the center and potentially miss or drop it short and I'll step up and attack you. So there's immense pre- pressure on that, but there's so much concentration and execution involved to be able to do that for long periods over five sets. Yeah. So the average 4-0 player out there is going like, oh yeah, that's great. You know, like he doesn't try to do much, but he's hitting 80 mile an hour ground strokes and can run, you know, sideline to sideline. So what do you think the average adult or kind of lower level junior can take away from what he does in a breaker, even though the, obviously the skill level is quite different. What, what kind of translates to that amateur level? I mean, I think almost at all levels, it's know what you do well and try and execute that at the start of the tiebreaker. Decide before points start what you're going to do and you can commit to that target or that, that strategy. A lot of times you get to a big point, it might be five all and a seven point tiebreaker. And I think the best thing to do is commit to whatever you intend to do. It could be take your first and best chance to rip and come to the net, or it could be I'm going to stay back and grind to a big target. But whatever you decide, you've got to be really committed to that in order to execute it really well. And maybe if that doesn't work, you can change that tactic the next time or that strategy the next time but committing to the target I think amateur players get into tiebreakers and they really don't have a plan they think they'll get the point started and we'll see what happens from there and having no plan is no plan it's no good at all you have to have at least some plan you can learn from that you can change the plan but I think that's really where players go wrong they just sort of go into tiebreakers and big points just assuming that it'll work out for the best I forget where I read it, but they said a good plan is better than a bad plan and a bad plan is better than no plan. Absolutely. Yeah, like absolutely. Said, That's what I was trying to get that out. I couldn't remember it, but I was just like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Agreed. So, so like I said, you know, not every pressure point happens in a tiebreaker. Sometimes it's, you know, three, four in a set, 30, 40 break point, and you got to have a big return point. Did you notice anything in the matches you watched about how players kind of played those more important points? Maybe let's just use breaking serve and on return to serve. Did you notice any patterns that they did on big uh, break points? Yeah, I mean, big, tu- big targets, big center targets. I mean, the, point, the 
returner is looking to obviously lengthen the point out. It's in their best interest to establish at least neutral first before they can go to offense. And the server is looking for something short or unreturnable where they can dictate from the start and not give control of that point back. So, of course, you're going to use deep center middle not to give any angle away and to try and give yourself the best chance of making those tough serves in play. But the best players are able to find that depth and establish that center depth early and often until they get to neutral and they're able to change direction or to step up and dictate. And it makes it really tough for the server. And I think, you know, in hindsight, and maybe it's tough for these players when they know they're playing the best returner ever, but being able to serve and volley, being able to approach off the serve, these are tactics that if you sprinkle them throughout a match, I feel like you keep the returner guessing throughout the match. You know, the Sitsipas-Djokovic final was crying out for Sitsipas to serve volley more. I mean, you know, you look at those points and you are not going to beat Novak from the back of the court. He had insane win percentage this Aussie Open. And it was funny looking at all the stats throughout all the matches and you look at the, you know, obviously you look at first serve percentage, second serve percentage win rates. But when you look at net play, net points won, every player, win or lose, is north of 50%. Some of them are losing the match straight sets, winning seven games, but they're winning 68% of net play points and they're only coming in 12 times. And it's just sort of tragic that you think that you're going to beat some of these high-level players without putting the pressure of coming forward and taking away their big targets. You know, if you give Novak, you give these elite players big targets, they're going to hit them. So coming forward takes away deep to deep to the middle. It makes them have to come up with something extra special. And by putting that pressure on, I think you've got to keep them guessing. Do you think the amateur player struggles with the concept of almost giving up control? So, you know, you got a break point and you go, well, if I just hit deep middle, then he could attack me or she could attack me, or maybe I'm not in control of the point. And at least, I mean, most points are one with an error, right? So I'm going, if you make your last shot on a break point, you're winning that point like 75, 80% of the time. And it can be scary to think that you're like not doing much, like going deep middle, but I see on big points, I I think more people overplay than underplay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I I just feel like, I mean, I know they, again, you can say, well, pros have confidence in their ground strokes, but they're playing another pro. So it's the same, it's the same thing. It's pound for pound. And I just feel like people overplay returns way too much, either missing wide or missing net and hitting huge. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that players typically, obviously not pro level, but they don't think in terms of two balls. I think they're thinking of typically one ball at a time, make the return, make the next ball. If you think of two balls, if you think of what am I doing with this ball, what do I want to do with the next ball, you can change that plan when the ball comes back again. That's tough. You just go back to that initial, I'm going to hit deep again. But I'm hitting deep because I want to get a short ball or I want to get a chance to run around and use my forehand or I want to get an approach opportunity. And if that doesn't come, you can maintain that same first ball plan until you do get the right one. But I think having that in mind helps you to execute because it doesn't put the pressure of you have to make this ball. It's like when players step up to the line and they think don't double fault. They double fault more often than not. It's the players who are thinking I'm going to hit this heavy kicker into the body and jam the player up so I get a forehand. They're able to execute that better because they're they're looking to set up the next ball. So it takes the pressure off that single shot that they have to hit. I also saw this somewhere. I can't remember. It's probably Instagram, but uh, someone did like this video and was like, what point do you need to win in a match? Like you've got to win it. And it's match point down, right? Like you can win a match with losing any point, except if you're down match point. 
Yeah. And I think people at two all in a breaker, or they get that first break point and they're like, Oh my God. Like, you know, I'll be watching the match with a parent and they'll go, Oh, Oh, my kid needs to win this. And I go, no, no, no. It'd be nice if they won it, but they really don't need it actually. Like they can win this match. And I think just like relieving that pressure a little bit can also free you up to try these simple things and go, Hey, if it doesn't work out, like it's deuce, I, I can get another break point. Like that's not a big deal. For sure. I also, I also think with pressure, it's really interesting with pressure because if you flip it, if me and you are playing a match and you have match point, I can either think, oh no, I'm down match point. I cannot afford to miss another shot. And that'll make me really tentative and really passive. Or I can think to myself, this is going to be Jonathan's only match point. And if I can win this, he's going to be thinking about that wasted match point for the rest of the match. So there's two ways to think about it. You can flip it. And I've always found that flipping it has been able to give me more confidence to go and execute. And in the same token, if I've got the match point up, I make sure that I reinforce the fact that you're feeling the pressure. So I know you're feeling pressure. Anytime you feel pressure, your opponent feels pressure in the match. So when you know that, you understand that, you can plan for what you're going to do next. And that's where I just think there's so much opportunity to, to serve and volley, especially when players are looking to get that first serve return back in. Some are chipping it deep. You know, some, some of these kids, maybe in the juniors, they have a Western grip. You know that they're not going to trust that Western grip down match point. So maybe you slide one to the forehand and come in. But, you know, that's just planning ahead and knowing the pressure moment. So you can always flip it to your advantage. I love that you said that. I've, I've always told my kids that. I'm like, hey, if there's an objective fact, like uh, you double faulted 10 times, like that's not, I don't have an opinion on that. That just happened. But pressure is not a tangible thing. And so, like I always said, if like if you're down match point, like you said, I go, oh, the pressure's on this guy. Like, if he doesn't close it out, he's going to be so tight. Yeah, oh, my absolutely. God. Absolutely. And then, if I, and then if I'm up, I go, oh, my God, the pressure's on them because if they lose it, the match is over. If I lose it, I got, like, 10 more chances. And they're like, well, you're, you're, like, you're saying the opposite. I'm like, yeah, but guess what? The pressure's never on me. Yeah, it's exactly. always on them. That's the point. You know, that's where you can free up and just go for it. And then you commit to whatever you decide you're going to do. Some, some, I always ask people, what would you rather do your first um, match point? Would you rather grind it out and wait for the player to miss or do you want to take your first and best chance to strike and it t- typically players are one or the other depending on their weapons but it, it, whatever you do you got to commit to it love that so you know we talked about that deep middle return and trying to lengthen the point as a returner but what kind of serve patterns did you see these best players using kind of throughout the tournament yeah on the men's and women's i saw so many successful wide serves say to the juice side and then the approach on the next ball to the open court and if you're right-handed serving to the juice side and you can hit a good swinging serve off the court, and it doesn't have to be hard. You can move the player outside the alley for the return. Anything they drop short, you can approach the backhand and they're on the run with their weak shot. So that's one thing you, you can see players doing more and more because they're starting to see the advantages, especially on a court as big as the Australian Open. But you know, being able to use that and get in behind a, a good serve, pulling the player off the court, it's a huge advantage. I think players should be trying to run those patterns there as much as possible. The slice serve out wide, you're hitting a little slower because you're you're putting more slice on it. So obviously you actually gain a little bit of consistency, I would think, a higher first serve percentage. And like you said, you know, hopefully they're outside that alley or at least your serve has pushed them outside of the singles line. So you have open court. Do you have any good drills? Like when you're working with your players, do you – you just do that out of a, a hand feed? Do you have them play points with a specific focus? Is there a good way to train that drill? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you got to get down is the serve. The serve has to be basically automatic and it should be 
a high confidence serve because it's a slower serve, it's easier to hit. You've just got to find that movement. So one of the ways that I like to train that serve is I literally go down the other end and I stand there as a stationary returner. My right foot is on the singles line and I'll say, you've got to hit five aces wide. I'm not allowed to move to touch the ball. If I touch it, you don't get the ace. So they find the value in being able to find movement and I've got wide reach, so I, I'm able to touch a lot of balls. So it makes them really focus on finding the swing on the serve. Then after that, they get a feel for that. Then we start to play where I'll play the ball into the middle of the court and then they approach on me. So we can do it off a feed. We can do it off a live ball. Um, I like to add the score. So you, know, you run that. And if, if the serve goes in and I make the return, then we play it out against the game score. So if they win the first point, 15 love. I win the next one, 15 all and basically put a little bit of scoreboard pressure on them as well so they get used to doing that under pressure. A lot of times that wide serve comes back through the middle, like you said, either intentionally because you're playing a smart player or accidentally just because it's a big part of the court. And a lot of players have trouble spacing on their forehand. And that ball that's kind of coming across your body at you can be a tricky one. And we know you want to get a serve plus one forehand. Do you have any good tips or drills for kind of creating that space from the middle with your forehand? Yeah, I think... You know, obviously, you've got to be able to recover after the serve and then create enough room to still be able to almost feel like you're wrapping around the ball. You don't want to hit through the back of the ball and get jammed. If you do get that ball that's caught on your body, the returner knows you're not going back to the juice court, so they just cover the open court. So you almost have to create enough room where you can go anywhere. But also, a lot of times, I think, too, in terms of an approach shot, it's not always better to hit the forehand. As you know, I think, you know, sometimes you can get to net faster and take the ball earlier as a backhand. You've got to determine, do I need pace on this? Do I need to find more spin and more angle? Then I might use my forehand. Is it a slower ball? I might get around it and use my forehand a lot more often. If the ball is coming at me faster and a little bit lower and I just want to come in and take it earlier without putting myself more at a positional disadvantage to hit that ball, then I'll take a backhand. So I think there's a lot of value in taking that backhand middle approach and going right to the net as well as a slice some of these players are going to be stretched out with a continental grip slicing the return that's going to be short and low and you're going to have to be able to come in and take a backhand slice and get to net as well yeah that's awesome advice because i i know obviously surplus one forehand numbers everyone knows you know most people win a higher percentage and so sometimes i'll see my juniors and they're like running in the alley hitting this awkward forehand slice and it's like well that that's not going to be one of the the winning points. Like you probably want to take a backhand on the rise. And yeah, yeah. that's the hard part about statistics, right? Is like, how do you implement that knowledge correctly? And it, a lot of times the answer is like, well, it just depends on the situation. Absolutely. And also the, just the role of the forehand and the backhand, right? They have, they, there's so many great players that have totally contrasting forehands and backhands. And Cam Norrie, uh, Nick Curious, Karen Kachanoff, these guys have totally different backhands to their forehands, but a lot of the technique on these backhands allow them to take the ball earlier. Francis Tierfo is another one. Like you look at Francis Tierfo taking a backhand return, a two-handed backhand return approach. That was a great play for him at the US Open. Take the kicker or even the slice serve, take it early, get to net. He's not taking the ball that early with his forehand because it's a bigger wind up, has more spin on it. He can't block it as easily. So there are roles for the forehand and the backhand. I think you just got to figure out, you know, which one is best to depending on the ball and the situation. I, I just picked up a stat right before we came on. It was uh, from O'Shaughnessy, our friend, and he was saying Novak, let's see, he had 111 winners on his forehand side and 165 errors. So it was minus 54. And then the backhand, which he probably has the best backhand ever, he had 38 winners and 162 errors. So he was minus 124. 
And like, if that doesn't highlight how they're just different, they're just different tools in a match. I mean, no one is claiming that Novak's backhand is bad because he was minus 124. No way. But yeah. you're just not going to create as much from the middle of the court unless that it's like yeah. a crazy short ball opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, and generally, like when you're a returner, you want to sort of hit a slower ball to the weaker wing, which is the backhand. So when you break the court down A, B, C, and D, like Craig. O'Shaughnessy does, you know, your first serve return typically goes to the backhand because you'll be blocking that. You'll give your server, your opponent serving a little bit more time to generate some pace, but you want them to have that time on the backhand, not the forehand. And then a lot of times when you're returning a second serve, you want to fire that return right at the forehand at B because that take back is bigger stroke and you'll catch a lot of players leaning back. And as you know, offensive forehand when you have time and a defensive forehand, it's totally different. You know, I love my inside out forehand. I hated my wide running forehand at the juice court. It's totally different. But a lot of players will look down the other end and say, oh, that guy has a great forehand. Let's keep it away from it. Where a lot of times it's like, let's go strong to that first. Let's make him defend with that. And then we've got the backhand that we can get to on the run and it's open now. Uh, we, you know, we're talking about the, the forehand and the backhand and, and Novak's got one of the best. But did you notice, at least with other players as well, like how the best players were using their backhands in the tournament? Yeah, crazy stat with the the men where at the end of the tournament, the best four players were taking their backhand the earliest. And so obviously that has a lot to do with technique. With a more compact take back, you're able to take the ball earlier. But they seem seemed to be managing that side better. And a lot of these players had massive forehands. But the contact points were earlier. They were doing a lot more damage. And actually, I think up until maybe the quarters, Karen Kachanoff was leading the uh, Aussie Open in backhand winners, which you would not expect at all. But partly it's to doing with the, with his technique, having a shorter, more compact take back, being able to take the ball earlier. The other one is just the surprise factor of going down the line when the, the opponent is expecting cross to set up the big forehand. So I think that's something that he maybe consciously set out to do during the Aussie Open, but contact points and court positioning was was one of the the big ones when it came to the backhand at the Aussie Open. Did it say how far behind or inside the baseline those those people were making contact with the ball? Uh, it was on a scatter plot and it compared all of the players and it just had them in comparison to their the peers in the in the in the field. So it didn't say exactly how far on average, but I, I think it was. You know, yeah, I can't tell you exactly what it was, but it was just in comparison to the other players. Got it. Because one one thing I work on a lot with my players is their space behind the baseline. So it's tricky, right? Like I don't want someone hanging way behind the baseline for no reason. But if you're playing someone who's hitting a quality deep ball and you just got your toes on the baseline, you're going to be picking up short hop half volleys and not making full swings. And then you're on defense. And so you know, the, whenever you're watching like the Australian Open, you've got, you know, the the Melbourne sign. And I don't know how far back the writing is behind the baseline, but you see a lot of times people are back that far. And I know they have space because it's a stadium court or whatever. But, you know, I think a lot of people just hug. I'm worried that people will hear that backhands were being taken early and they're going to go, cool, I'll just leave my toes on the baseline. And it's like you might just want to move up and back with the ball. I, I know those pros are not just camping out on the baseline, just short hopping. They're seeing it short and they move up, take it early. And then if someone hits really deep, they give themselves space behind the baseline. So that's one thing I see is those pros baseline rallies. They're they're pretty far behind the baseline and then they just move up very well to short balls. 
Yeah, and especially when you're returning, right? You're definitely going to be more on the defensive when you're returning. Your positioning a lot of times will start further back. Um, and then you're looking to inch your way forward. If you look at Nadal and Federer from the side views, Nadal is definitely, I'm, I'm talking on return now, you'll see him starting way back and he'll just sort of inch his way forward with each ball after the return until he's inside the baseline. And then it's his advantage massively. But I also think, you know, players need to learn when to split step backwards in order to give themselves more time to defend. We talk about split steps a lot as coaches. Um, a lot of that has to do with going forward and, and being at the net and reading and picking off a passing shot. But there's also lateral split steps where you're recovering to the middle and you need to split in order to not only cover the open court, but to come back and cover the ball that's hit behind you. There is split stepping backwards, which you see a player will drop the ball short. They'll see their opponent come forward to it and they'll split step back to create more room to keep the court in front of them and make it harder for that opponent to hit the ball past them. So I think that's really important that the players understand that. You see good players do that all the time, but not many people think to do that. Do you have any good tips for reading the ball? Like we're talking about space behind the baseline and then seeking that opportunity to come up to it. But a big part of that is you have to know that the opponent has hit the ball short. And that is something everyone I work with struggles with big time. Do you have any good drills or advice for how to read that ball a little better? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down, a lot of it has to do honestly with experience and being able to read the opponent. I mean, you've got to read the opponent's body language, everything from their weight transfer to the racket face being open. You have to understand how well you've hit the ball where the ball is likely to come back. You've got to read the height of the ball that's traveling towards you. Is it high? It's likely to go deeper. Is it lower? It's likely to be dropping short. And then you have to you know, also be able to move up when you feel like you've pushed your opponent back preemptively. So there's a lot of reading that goes into it. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, you know, experience. But also you can do things with players and juniors like rallying and you have them call out the depth of the ball as early as possible. So it could be short, mid or deep. When you break the court down, you know, the service line and net, service line to net is short, service line to depth line is mid and depth line to baseline is deep. And you can have them call out as you rally and they have to identify that as early as possible. You're talking about the quality of your own ball, the body language of the opponent, uh, the sound off the strings, all this stuff. And I, I know when I get into it, people go, oh my God, it's too much. Like, ah, I just, I just want to hit, like, I don't want to think. Right. And I guess my thing is I would promise everyone out there, like if you think about it enough, it starts to happen very quickly in your mind. And I think that's just a very overwhelming thing at first is, you know, they want to think about their stroke and they go, how I'm going to hit the ball. And then I have to think about you and what you look like. And it's just overwhelming, but you really can't get to that next level unless you go through the pain of kind of thinking through that stuff in a practice match. Absolutely. There's no way around it. I remember still playing a junior tournament where I had one player that I was playing against that was just hacking these massive underspin drop shots are about eight feet tall. And I didn't work out that they were spinning backwards every time. And he continually hit winners on me. I still remember this to this day. And it's funny looking back at it now because it seems so obvious. The racket face is open. He's going to hit it, one of those stupid drop shots again. But you know, in terms of reading the play, that's why the pros... Uh, put so much emphasis on disguise early because they know the opponent is reading them. So you look at a drop shot, the guy will move forward. He's going to be aggressive in his preparation and just enough to get the opponent to take one step back or a split step back and then changes the grip and hits the drop shot. So all of those things come into play later and you're able to use it against your opponent when they're reading you so well and intently. 
So tough final question here, but if you could only give the listener out there one piece of advice that they could have learned from the Australian Open, what's the one thing that you would encourage them to do moving forward? Always plan the points that you're going to play ahead of time, but also big shots go to big targets. And if you focus on, especially singles, if you focus on depth before direction, you're going to force more errors out of your opponent and you'll have more chances to be offensive when they drop it short. So I think keep in the back of your mind in, in singles, depth before direction, um, especially on return. But yeah, commit to your targets. And I think you'll if you have a plan, you can always change it. But that's probably the couple of things that I've noticed from the Aussie Open. Obviously, they're pros and they do that routinely without question. But you'd be surprised how many players that are not at that level that don't have any plan at all. That's absolute gold that will be going on an Instagram reel, most likely. Um, all right, Joel. Hey, thanks for coming on. Like I said, I, I knew we were going to do this for the Aussie. Hopefully for, for French and Wilbur, we can have you back on and see what, what these guys are doing on different surfaces and, and what the best players are doing. But uh, learned a lot from you, man. Thanks for your time. You too, mate. You too. This is fun. Yeah, we'll do it next time. All right. I want to thank Joel for coming back on and giving his insights of what the best players in the world were doing at the Aussie. You know, he gave a lot of cool tactics and drills and, and concepts, but my favorite thing that he talked about was just the whole element of pressure and on those big points, how you can talk yourself into the opponent feeling more pressure than you and how that can free you up. I mean, almost every single player I've worked with has struggled with pressure and nerves and feeling tight in those big moments. And so how you talk to yourself and how you view those situations is crucial. So whether it's a break point and you're going to return middle or whether it's a deuce point and you want to serve wide and hit a forehand open court, try to remember the pressure is on your opponent just as much as you and see if that frees you up. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.